Well, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, in all three readings we have for this morning, we hear about mercy, some unexpected. In the Old Testament lesson, we have a wonderful story of this dialogue between God and Moses, and there is a significant problem. One of the gifts in my life was Dr. Stensvog, who was my Pentateuch professor. Uh, Dr. Stensvog had been the former president of the Lutheran Free Church, and following the merger of 1960, he was without work, and they made a wise decision and invited him to come and teach at Luther's seminary. And one of his favorite parts of Old Testament was this ongoing relationship between Moses and God. And we have these wonderful stories of conversation between our creator and the one that he had chosen to lead. And regularly, they sound like two old grumpy men. And we have a little bit of that today. We have this lovely story of Moses having gone to the top of the mountain and he spent, at least in the minds of the people who were waiting patiently, not patiently, down at the foot of the mountain, he has spent way too much time there. He has been in conversation with God at the top of the mountain, with, surrounded by a cloud, and the people cannot see or hear, and it has been too long, and they have great anxiety, and more importantly, they are fearful. They are still fleeing from Egypt, and their leader is out of touch. And so what do they do when groups of people are anxious they want something concrete. We want something visual. We want something that we can see and maybe even touch to, to lower our anxiety. And they go to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and, and truthfully, he's not a very good leader. He's weak, and he's easily swayed. He does not do what leaders should do, which is transmit calm in such times, and he acquiesces to their demands to have a God that they can see and touch and one that they can have a relationship with. And so they give up all their gold, their rings and their jewelry and they melt all that down and Aaron crafts a calf and they begin to worship and party and revel in their new God. So here's Moses and God up on the mountaintop and God sees what's going on and he is not happy at all. And he says to Moses, your people are misbehaving. They have abandoned me, and I'm, let, me, let me alone so that my anger might burn white hot. And I'm going to wipe them out, and I will start over with you and make of you a great nation. And then here's this lovely dialogue. Moses saying to God, well, first of all, they're not my people. I did not lead them out. You led them out of Egypt. You're the one that collected them. They are yours. Furthermore, this is my favorite part, what will the neighbors say? An age-old argument that actually has some merit here. What will the neighbors say? They're, the Egyptians are going to say, oh, look, he just led them out so he could kill them in the wilderness. What will people think about that? And then he says, Remember that you're the creator. You're the one that made them. And then there's that lovely line in the Old Testament. And God changed his mind. 
and applied mercy. Applied mercy. He did not wipe out the Jews. He did not make a, a great nation of Moses. He changed his mind. In the gospel reading, we've moved through the turbulence of chapter 14, if you've been here the last several weeks, all the fires that have been lit, all the pushing that Jesus has been doing, and now you get, well, you get the result of all that in chapter 15. And what do you get? Good church people grumbling and muttering to themselves. This person, this man, is not a good rabbi because he sits with sinners and eats with tax collectors. And emotionally, we have no, we really have no um, connection with that phrase, tax collector. You can, we have no way of hating someone that badly in our community. Because we're not an occupied nation, we don't have someone ruling over us, and to have a, a member of our community working directly with the occupiers. That's who he's sitting with. He's working with people who are working with the Romans. And the only way they get paid is by overcharging you the money you owe the government. Imagine the IRS just deciding how much you should pay. It's not the way it works in the United States. So what does Jesus do in response to all that? Well, being a good rabbi, he tells a story. And he tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and they're out in the wilderness and he counts and notices that one is gone. Now I've preached this any number of ways and any number of times through the decades that I've been a pastor. But I finally, I think, got pretty close to the truth on my last trip to Israel. The president, or not the president, excuse me, but the bishop of Jerusalem and Jordan is a friend of mine. Uh, he invited me to his home, and in his home we had a lovely meal, and we shared it with one of the chief rabbis of Jerusalem, who is one of his personal friends. And we had a lively conversation, and we got to this parable, this par parable in particular. And he said that they had done some archaeological work, and they had done some understanding of Scripture and other documents, and he had, they had learned things about shepherds in the first century. That if you had a hundred sheep, more than likely this man was one who was hiring himself out. Because a normal herd was somewhere around 10 to 15 animals, and you couldn't afford necessarily to take 15 animals to the, to the wilderness for grazing during the grazing season. And so you hired someone. You hired a shepherd. And you gave them your sheep. So here in this collection are the sheep for four, five, maybe six families. And now he's lost one. And so for him, the economic peril is that if he doesn't return, he doesn't get paid. If he's just one minus, her herd is not complete. And so it actually makes sense for him to leave the 99, although I still wonder about that, because they're not in a paddock, they're not in a shelter, they're in the wilderness, and he goes and searches and finds the one that's lost so that when he returns, there will, in fact, be celebration. And the community will be complete. 
And then he tells the story of a woman, and we know because of some of the details that she's not wealthy at all, she's poor. The main one being is she doesn't have windows in her house. So when she has to go searching, she has to light a lamp because you can't open the drapes because there are no drapes. But why 10 coins? Well, normally that was the dowry that your father gave to you when you got married. And no matter what happened in your life, you were supposed to get that back even if you were divorced. And so if you go with me to Israel, uh, you might see Bedouin women particularly who will wear their 10 coins across their forehead or on a necklace around their neck. And one of those is now lost. Her world is not complete. And so she lights a lamp and searches until it's found. And indeed, she would celebrate because the gift that had come from her father has now been restored. What I love about both stories is both the sheep and the coin are talked about as repenting. What do you mean? How could a sheep repent? How could a coin repent? Well, I don't, I don't know that a lot of coins or sheep repent. But what does this mean? It means that Jesus has reached into their life and found them, and the repenting looks a lot like just being found and restored into the community. Jesus is speaking directly at the good church people of the time because they're not happy. They, in fact, are the 99 righteous or the nine coins still around the neck. And they're not very happy, they're not very happy that Jesus is messing around with the people who should not be invited. He should not be spending time with them. We've heard those Old Testament lessons in the last several weeks where it was very clear that you and I are not supposed to hang out with what? Those people. We're not supposed to be with those people. We, as good righteous folks sitting in righteous pews, should separate ourselves from them. But here comes Jesus, who's breaking all the norms and the molds and stepping into worlds that were very disconcerting to the people. He is applying mercy. So we get stuck, right? Because it's easy enough for those of us, you and I, who have been found and now we're very comfortable being here in the places and the positions that we are and it doesn't take very long for us to step into a world of judgment, of shaking our heads or wagging our fingers or saying, those, those folks, they don't belong here. We don't want them here. And you can underline whichever them or those you want. Jesus Christ is about mercy and invitation. And furthermore, when we forget that we're the found ones, we also forget that we're not, in fact, self-righteous. That we, we have been found, placed on his shoulders, and carried back into community. Furthermore, when we start carving out the those and the thems and those people, guess what can happen? Did you hear the words from Paul to Timothy? He laid out his life. He was one of those people. He was the them who didn't belong. 
If there was anyone who should never have been invited to, to the Christian community, it was Paul. He literally had blood on his hands. He had had Christians arrested and executed. This is self-declared. This is him speaking, not me. If there was someone who should have been marginalized and ignored or even put down and certainly never invited, it would have been St. Paul. But you can make a really good argument that without him, without his work, without his ability to translate the Hebrew scripture into Greek and Hebrew thought into Greek thinking, you and I would not be here today if it had not been for St. Paul bringing bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to Gentile people. There's a pretty good, pretty good bet that you and I wouldn't be sitting here in this beautiful sanctuary. When we start deciding who should be here and who shouldn't be here, or who should be in charge and what should be in charge, and Christ is not that, then we are in trouble. When Jesus Christ is not the center of the church, Congregations, I believe, are in peril. When his words and his deeds are not the center of what drives us and makes us who we are, well, then we're in trouble. Because in Jesus Christ, there is mercy. In Jesus Christ, there is opportunity to be reclaimed and refound and to be repentant. So this week, this week, as you are the people of God, as we move through this week, I invite you to share Christ's mercy with your neighbors, with your spouse, with your family, and most importantly, with yourself. Because we, in fact, are the found ones. We are the ones that Christ and the heavenly choir is rejoicing over. So God's blessings on each of you as you share the good news. Amen.